for most Americans, things have gotten harder and worse over the last 30 or 40 years as things have gotten better and easier for people at the very tippy top. I started pitching an income inequality documentary and nobody was interested. It is not just about income inequality, but also about uh, how we got there. We set out to make this and we knew it was a problem, but we didn't realize how big of a problem it was. You know, the statistics don't show the, the suffering. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. You know, Nick, that I that I take this podcast uh, very seriously, and when we have an author on the podcast, I always try to read the book or the article that we're talking about. And uh, today we have filmmakers on the podcast, and so last night I went and watched the film, and you know I'm watching, and there's this this uh, really arrogant uh, yeah. class uh, trader billionaire on there talking about income inequality. Are you familiar with this guy? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. You discovered to your horror that I was in the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wasn't there when they came and interviewed you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How'd this come about? Yeah. So my friend, uh, Barry Ritholtz, uh, who's a very prominent hedge fund guy and also advocate for middle class folks fellow um, class trader yeah you know a fellow class trader wonderful guy uh hooked me up i think it was very but also um invictus our friend invictus um uh -huh. somehow there was a connection there and they they wanted to see this film get made and so they introduced me to them and so i was filmed a couple of times i think a couple of times by these guys over the course of them making the film and I'm very pleased that I got to participate in it. Did you enjoy it? Uh, I Well, did I enjoy it? Um, yeah. <laughs> to find enjoy. I found it very engaging. You, you know, of course, this is a film about, an, yeah. about inequality. We should, we should tell our audience what the film is, by the yeah, way. It's, uh, right. <laughs> it's called Americond. And by the time this podcast comes out, it should be available for downloading and streaming on uh, a number of services. So... Uh, we'll provide a link in the show notes. And it is not just about uh, income inequality, the, the vast inequality in the United States today, but also about uh, how we got there. But you and I, we're well familiar with the numbers. You're obviously featured in the film. You're providing uh, some of the information on which the film is based. But what we're not familiar with at a personal level guttural level is the 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 suffering that it causes of yeah. course we know it causes suffering yeah but it's different than hanging out in the suffering right we're not experiencing it yeah. experiencing it and we're not around the people right who are experiencing it and so you ask me if i enjoyed the film no <laughs> because it made me very anxious and sad yeah uh yeah. throughout most of it because Unlike some of your billionaire compatriots, I'm not a sociopath. And so when I see other people suffer, I feel it too. And yeah. while they certainly make an effort at the end to give a kind of 
uh, upbeat finish and I, you know, a, a more, not upbeat, but more hopeful closing about what's possible. And I don't want to give that away. It, it's, uh, it can be difficult at times to watch. Yeah. Uh, that said, I highly recommend it, of course. Yeah. You know, not just for the information in it, but for the same dramatic reasons why we watch fiction, because- yeah. You know, where most of us are human beings who get something out of other people's emotions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're lucky today to get to have Sean Claffey and Dave Pedersen, uh, who are the director, producers, and writers of this new film, Americond, with us to talk about what they did and why they did it. So let's get to that. Hi, I'm Sean Claffey. I'm the director of Americond. I'm Dave Pedersen. I'm a producer and writer of the documentary Americond, and uh, thanks for having us on, Nick. Yeah, you bet. So, guys, uh, what inspired you to make this documentary? So, actually, Nick, this this whole idea, I had this back in 2008 after the subprime crash, and it came to me through Jeff Mann, who you've met, who's also a producer on the film, and he had been working down on Wall Street. He had been warning me about the subprime crash. And so I really started getting hard into economics and started, especially started diving into income inequality. And he hooked me onto Barry Ritzholtz's book. And so I got really into Barry and I started pitching um, an income inequality documentary back in 2008 and nobody was interested. Everyone was like, I don't know if this is a problem. They'll just bail the banks out. Everything will be fine, you know, and no one was interested. I was, you know, my current production partner, they weren't interested, nobody was interested in doing this film. So fast forward five years and you come out with your, the pitchforks are coming for this article. And I'm like, see, see, here's proof. <laughs> it's like, this. I'm not imagining this, yeah. this is a problem. I'm like, here's a guy that has all the money in the world and he says it's a problem. And so I gave that to Sean and you guys got us fired up and started. Um, and so we started working on, on it like, Right after your article came out, so in 2014 we started toying oh, wow. with it. That's and then, that's incredible. Yeah, and then once again we just couldn't get support. I couldn't get investors. I couldn't get like production companies, distributors. They just didn't see it as a major problem. Well, and then, weird that people with money to invest in films wouldn't see this as a major problem. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's exactly it. Try raising money from those folks to change policy. <laughs> yeah it's that was the problem and i'm like they, it's like because they live in a bubble it's you know hey i love entertainment i've loved making films but it's an industry that lives in a bubble and they just you know can't see outside like their new york la cocoons and you know see what you know we saw especially making this film and you know traveling around the country and i think sean will attest i think we traveled about close to what fifty thousand miles filming it was about 38,000 miles in a uh, in a station wagon filled with equipment. Um, That's great. We, we set out to make this, and we knew it was a problem, but we didn't realize how big of a problem it was. And the more people we talked to, the more we realized that all the statistics in the world, you know, you could present them, but you hear real stories and real emotional stories and people that are, are you know, suffering in, in great ways in this country. You know, the statistics don't show the the, the suffering. Yeah. You wanted to make an, a documentary about inequality and its causes and effects and so on and so forth. 
What did you learn through the process of making the documentary? And, and was there anything that surprised you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, that is far, far worse than we ever had imagined. And that it's an existential threat. And if we don't change, we're going to, you know, as Nick says in the film, you know, we're going to get an authoritarian government, a police state, or a revolution. And none of those things make lives better. So this affects everyone, whether they're touched by it now or if we let it go on and we have a collapse or we have a revolution or, you know, we, we saw what it would look like with, with January 6th. Yeah. Um, that, it, you know, there's nowhere to hide from this. Uh, if it all comes, if, and if it all comes crashing down in the United States, there's nowhere in the, in the world that will survive. Oh, it's Nick, and like, like two things that came to mind is like when we were filming with you and you brought up one stat and we use it in the film and it's still, my jaw still drops every time I think about it, where you brought up that in the last 50 years, like $50 trillion of wealth has shifted, you know, from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. Right. Like every time I, I run that number through my head, I was like, I remember you said that. And I was like, I had heard similar things, but then I was like, you know, of course we went back check going, oh man, Nick's right. This is really, and, and because people can't fathom what 50 trillion looks like, you know, mm -hmm. when you tell someone a million, a billion to 50 trillion, that's staggering. You see those numbers when you're traveling between the coast and stopping in all these different states to film. And you see that, and that, that stat you gave us, you know, I think will floor people when they see the film. What states did you go to? We went to uh, Seattle, well, California. Oh, I'm sorry. Washington, California. Yeah. <laughs> Seattle's um, kind of a separate state. Yeah, it is, it is. Yeah, like Austin <laughs> is to Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, Iowa, Mississippi, Florida, uh, D.C., New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maine, Massachusetts, Alabama, and wow. Tennessee. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, it's just obviously true that for most Americans, things have gotten harder and worse over the last 30 or 40 years as things have gotten better and easier for people at the very tippy top. The thing, of course, that is so important today is getting people to understand why things are worse and mm -hmm. what they should collectively do to make them better. And I'm, I'm wondering if through the experience of making the film or, you know, even just talking to folks, you guys could suss out how people thought about what happened, what, why what happened happened. Like what, what do people think out there? Does that make, does that question make sense? Yes. I think that they don't know how they got here. And if they're, if they're say 40 or younger, they think this is how it always was. And they are, some of them are very pissed off. And if, you know, if you're working three jobs and you're, you're losing the, your place to live and you're, you know, you're going to have your car repossessed, your life is burning down and you want to burn it all down. Yeah. This, this is the danger. Right. And, and then, you know, you, you know, you read any of the books by like Annie Applebaum or, you know, uh, Timothy Schneider. And this mm -hmm. is how the fascism comes into play that they, they, now right. they're easily they're desperate they're hurting they have no hope and and 
their emotions can be played with very easily uh, to say the uh, this group is causing it or the other, you know, whether yeah. that is the immigrants, uh, uh, Jewish people, the Mexicans, whatever. And and what happens after that is is we know what happens after that. It's terrible. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that you know, this is Trumpism, right? Mm -hmm. Like the objective reality of their declining economic prospects and social mobility is a fact, right? Like they, they have a reason to be pissed off. It's not like they're making that up. They just don't, they don't aware Cause like you said, Nick, it's like, it, it comes down to the, you know, it's a propaganda play, you know, it's mm -hmm. fascism 101. And in our film, one of the threads we use as the narrative is uh, we use a lot of interviews with Kurt Anderson, you know, based off of his book, Evil Geniuses, which I think he, you know, lays out, you know, how this all came to be, you know, from right, the very deliberate the Freeman doctrine on, you know, I think, I think Kurt does a great job of that. So he's heavy in our film. When you were talking to these folks, was there anything you think that could give them hope? Well, what gives me hope is we, we came across Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer early in the film. And, you know, they, they weren't thinking about unionizing or, or anything. They just, they were just looking for some rights to, you know, uh, have masks and uh, find out information about uh, health concerns. Um, and, you know, those two guys with maybe 15 other supporters, like close supporters, were able to, it busted their ass for, you know, two years, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and they were able to organize. And it just goes to show that a small amount of people who are highly committed can make change. And it was, we never, you know, we were hopeful that they would be able to organize uh, an Amazon, but I wasn't sure that that was going to happen. And, yeah, you know, and, and that, that gives me hope. And, and I think that, you know, we, we showed the film to mixed audiences, you know, just like test stuff. And, you know, it, it does screen really well with conservatives. Now, I'm not talking about politicians. I'm talking about people that think of themselves as conservative because they, they see that, it spells out how it happened and how, how they're getting screwed and, and how unfair it is. And it, yeah, it's hard to look away from that. There's a weird disparity too, Nick, because I, I find this in Texas um, talking to some people, especially when you leave the bubble of Austin. And I find they came down to like in the last couple of elections, like, well, I was going to vote for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I mean, it can't be. And it, it came down to that decision. And I'm like, that says a lot right there when it yeah, came for to sure. being those two, because they can't be more different. But that was who they were. They were they seemed to be choosing. And I encounter that a lot with people, especially outside, you know, the East West Coast bubbles. You know, I see that a lot. You know, sad thing is though, that a lot of those people seem to gravitate more towards Trump. And I think it's because of the Trumpism, you know, the pointed fingers being, yeah. paid, you know, whatever right. is in their system, you know? Well, scapegoats are, are, are powerful, but I think it's, I think it's true going back to 2016. I think one of the things that cost Hillary Clinton the election was her pragmatism. Uh, she was not promising substantial change because uh, a, she didn't believe in it, and B, she didn't believe it was possible. She 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 wouldn't support a minimum wage, a fifteen dollar minimum wage, because she thought it was too high, and she thought she could never get it through Congress. Trump was lying about the change she was promising, 
but at least he was promising something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there were voters on the edge and that was uh, Bernie Sanders believes the stuff he's advocating for. Um, and I think he's smart enough to know that much of it isn't possible over the short term. But when you're that's what Bernie that those are they had other things. But those are two things that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump had in common is that they they were promising substantial change. Well, yeah, they were throwing down around around things that would actually make a difference in people's lives. And I think the biggest indictment of the Democratic Party over the last 40 years has been an unwillingness to advocate in any reasonable material way for things that would actually improve the lives of the typical person. And as a consequence for most people, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party effectively merged on economic policy. As a practical matter, almost no difference. And, and you point you point that out in uh, you illustrate that uh, very clearly in the film where you you go from uh, Clinton talking about the promises of NAFTA to uh, uh, factories being torn down, you know, literally de demolished. Yeah. Yeah. If under Bush senior, your life got worse and then under the Clintons, they got, they got worse and then Bush junior it got worse and then under Obama, it got worse. You know, you're like, get rid of all these people. Yeah, pretty hard to be fired up about either political party. Yeah, and yeah. I, I spoke yeah. to people who voted for Obama yeah. and then voted for Trump. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. The interesting thing too, Nick, with uh, us getting to you, which, you know, our mutual friend Barry Ritzholtz put us together, was the fight for 15 in Seattle. Because we were like, right. okay, this is good. Nick's saying all the things, but then he's also in the fight for 15 in Seattle, which was a, you know, a great laboratory test yeah. for the minimum wage. You know, because we were hearing all, I mean, you were getting all the rhetoric of like, oh, every small business will fail. Yeah. Like the city will collapse and all that. And then we were watching and we were watching it unfolding, you know, before, you know, we got even got out to see you and we're like, oh, wow, none of these businesses are failing. Like they said, they said every small business would fail if they had to pay everyone $15 an hour. And, you know, you can talk to more of that than, you know, we can, but, you know, you were in the battle there for that. So Yeah, no, for sure. So here's a fact. There are something like 9,000 professional economists employed in the United States of America. And to my knowledge, <laughs> To my knowledge, not one economist wrote in favor of the $15 minimum wage when we began to do it. Not one. Wow. wow. Not amazing. one. So, not, some that, of them like, wrote in favor of raising the minimum wage, but but they wouldn't stick their necks out on 15, including, right. including and we won't name him, a very prominent uh, labor economist who is very much on our side. Nick and I had a conversation with, yeah. and he kept saying that he, he he was not comfortable with 15. He thought that there yeah. wasn't good evidence saying that we could support a $15 yeah. minimum wage, that it was just so outside of our experience that he couldn't come out and support it. And he was proven wrong. Yeah, of course. But this is, you know, this is the central problem is even the academic economists who are not uh, trickle downers, th the most aggressive position they'll take is, well, a $15 minimum wage probably won't cause that much harm. Right. <laughs> because they see economic cause and effect in this, you know, 19th century equilibrium way. And this is the big, this is the big challenge that we face. Although we should acknowledge in this interview that there's more to be optimistic about than just 
a few places beginning to be unionized, the Biden administration has done a full break from trickle-down economics. And in the last two years has passed more sensible economic legislation and enacted, you know, through executive order, more uh, imperatives to improve the economy for working and middle-class people than the last eight presidents combined, probably. So all this work is paying off. Yeah, no, we were definitely very, very uh, excited about what he's done and and what they did with, um, they were able to reduce childhood poverty, only temporarily, but in a substantial way. And, you know, when we were interviewing Dr. Gary Evans, and the effects of poverty on children are so uh, destructive, you know, their inability to to form relationships, their inability to hold jobs, these things go on for you know, their whole lives, and they could be, you know, curtailed early uh, with, with intervention. And, and we kind of prove that. Now, whether we'll get back to that, we'll, we'll see. But Biden has done a great job. You, you raised that point, because it's actually it's one of the more depressing things uh, of the past year or so is that we know the lifelong harm of childhood poverty, that the best thing you can do to break that cycle of poverty is not raise kids in poverty. And on top of that, we know how to solve it which is give families with children money. Yeah. It worked. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, it, it sounds crazy. Crazy, Goldie, that, you're crazy. That maybe if they have more money, they won't be so poor. And then their children will have better outcomes across the board throughout their lives. So we know the harm. We know how to fix it. And we won't do it. Well, it, I mean, it's crazy. It's like you say these things like, and they make so much sense. Like Nick in our film, you know, was going like, if you don't pay the people, who's going to buy the stuff? Right, and, right. And, and it kills you because like I, what I think and like, you know, Nick, of course, runs in these crowds more. So maybe he can understand their thinking. But it's like like one percenters, billionaires, they hoard money. They hoard cash like lower middle class people. They get the money. It goes right back into the economy. So if you're giving them more money, that's going right back in the economy. They can't afford to hoard money. It's going, it gets fed immediately back into the economy. And what, what we find scary, the other, like another figure that we, we post in our film, and I think you saw it, was like 44% of Americans are making $10.22 an hour or less. 44%. That's outrageous. And, you know, when you, and if you extrapolate the numbers, this is kind of what we got going on this project is, you know, I had watched LBJ's, you know, war on poverty speech in 65. And that's what, you know, really got me going. And I was reading, you know, Robert Caro's, you know, huge volumes on LBJ. And, you know, I was looking, it's like, while he was president, you know, he had child poverty. It was like over 25%. By the time Nixon started dismantling all his policies in the early 70s, you know, it had dropped to like 11%. But I looked at minimum wage in 65 and it was like $1.25 an hour. And I was like, hmm, it's $7.25 now. It's like, that's been, you know, 57 years now. And I was, so I started extrapolating this back in 2015. And I was like, what would that be? And I got to the number was like, you know, over $20 an hour, like 22 or something I got at the time. And it's it's insane. And uh, Barry, Barry harps on that in our film about, you know, talking about, wage and productivity. And, you know, we have a bunch of those figures in there, but, you know, that was something that I wanted to like talk about too. It's just like how wages have just been completely stagnant since Reagan, basically. 
so Nick and I and our audience are, 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 are pretty familiar with all the numbers. What, mm -hmm. what Nick and I don't do is uh, talk a lot with the people who are suffering from them. I'm curious in that, that pretty heart-wrenching scene near the end with the single mom independent truck driver who's you know pretty much at the end of her rope at that point. And there's a scene in there where she says that she knows it's not her fault, but she feels like it's her fault. In talking to people who are suffering this way, how prevalent is it this blaming themselves for their current predicament? I think it's very prevalent. And what it does to their families, the shame they feel, their inability to sleep. They just lay awake at night and worry. And what what Marty says in the film, Marty Walsh, uh, no one should disagree with the path to the middle class, right? And we're we have just shattered that path. And mm -hmm. and and the people that um, I mean, we, we just see it in the news: suicides are up, you know, drug abuse is way up, drug overdoses are way up. These these are all related. You know, this is has real effect on people. And they are suffering on a daily basis. And there's no hope that they don't get paid enough to uh, make their lives better. They're just, and, and one little thing just spirals them out, you know, and then boom, their car doesn't work anymore. Now they can't get to work. Yeah. Now they lose and their job. Just, and, then, yeah. and then boom, now they're homeless. Right. Yeah, right. And now, now try to dig yourself out of that. And, and, you know, and then the kids get devastated from this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very very sad and and very emotional. I I, I cried many times. You know, many times making this movie. Um, you know, and and we did our best to help them while we could. You know, getting them plugging into resources and stuff. But you know, it's it, it's an avalanche, with, and you have yeah. a shovel. <laughs> and you and you could see that with some of the the people in the film. How how hard it's hard work being poor, getting the services that you're owed, but you're you're, which you're eligible for the, that you're often denied because you don't get the right paperwork done or where people just refuse to accept the paperwork in the case of the people seeking the eviction exemption under the COVID rules. Yeah, we saw that over and over and over again. Especially our shoot in Orlando, we saw a lot of that and it's pretty it's pretty evident in the film, you know, we that was a big focus of our film in Orlando. You know, little little children li living without running water you know, in mass, you know, in these, in these hotels that, uh, no running water, no, you know, no place to cook. So their food costs are incredibly high. It's just this, you know, th this unending spiral. Um, and the, the kids are, you know, the kids are devastated. Yeah. Terrible. Best of luck with the film and hope a zillion people watch it. It would be a good thing. Yeah. Um, uh, question. Yeah. Why do you guys do this work? My my family, uh, especially my grandfather, came from Ireland, um, a subsistence farmer, uh, you know, didn't own a pair of shoes till he was 15 years old, you know, was able to come to this country and, you know, build a life, support his family back home from starving. And he was able to build the American dream for my mother, who was one of the first women on Wall Street. And then, uh, and then I, I benefited from that greatly. And I, I see that as being eroded. And 
you know, we have, we really want to shine a light on, on, on all these problems because they can be fixed very quickly. The solution to income inequality is to raise wages. It's really that simple. Crazy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up, I grew up relatively poor. My mother, my dad's an American. My mother's from Italy and they moved here just before I was born. And then my dad abandoned us. And so my mom had to learn to speak English. He worked minimum wage jobs, like cleaning houses, working in cafeterias. You know, we had to use food stamps, you know, welfare, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, I grew up like that. So I can, you know, I understand what people are going through. And I still don't know how my mom raised me and my sister to get through it. You know, we both went, you know, got, went through college. You know, we both had really good careers. And so it's my way of kind of giving back, spotlighting, trying to help people. It's, you know, it just feels like something I, I need to do. I like to tell these stories and, you know, I'm kind of, I've always been a bit of a crusader for the underdog. So, you know, it comes from my background. Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us. Best of luck thank on you. the film. Thank you. And uh, we'll chat soon. Sean and Dave mentioned that uh, amongst the states they visited was the state of Seattle, which yep. is a kind of a state of mind, as well as uh, <laughs> a city in a very different part of the state than much of the rest of it. And I think that's really significant. I mean, obviously, uh, apart from coming out here to interview you, uh, and and I saw April Sims uh, from the Washington State Labor Council mm -hmm. uh, interviewed repeatedly. The reason to come to Seattle is because it is the home of Amazon and Starbucks, two companies where there has been some success over the past couple of years in unionizing, surprising successes in unionizing. And, you know, I feel that Seattle plays an outsized role in what's happening today, both in the causes of inequality, uh, obviously big tech city, a lot of a lot of tech millionaires and billionaires out here, but also on the retail side, in terms of a lot of the wealth that's generated here comes from a form of, for lack of a better word, economic colonization. That is what Amazon and Starbucks have been doing around the country. They move into these markets and it's not just a matter of driving local retailers out of business. It's about sucking value out of communities around the country and back into these corporations and their shareholders. Well, that's modern capitalism. That is modern capitalism. Yeah. But I think Seattle is such a great, you know, our hometown of Seattle is such a, a great icon of it because it is where much of the innovation and good innovation, yeah. I mean, I don't frequent Starbucks all that often, and I try to refrain from Amazon, but it's it's incredibly convenient. And, you know, there's sometimes places where Starbucks is the best coffee around. Not always, but you can yeah. get it all over the place. So there's a lot of innovation, a lot of a lot of ways in which they they improve our lives, but also they are responsible for a lot of what's going wrong in the economy. And a lot of the wealth that we enjoy, you know, I'm a homeowner here, a middle-class homeowner. And one of the reasons why my house appreciates so quickly is because these companies are here yeah. uh, creating wealth here. And yet at the same time, uh, we were out 
at the forefront of the $15 minimum wage movement and paid sick leave and paid overtime and all these other movements. Yeah, not not things we got a lot of uh, personal support uh, from Jeff Bezos or Howard Schultz <laughs> on. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when people out in Seattle and in cities, the, the very successful tech hubs, uh, people here watch this film, I think they need to understand that this is not just something all oh, these poor people that the economy is doing this stuff to. No, no, we're, we're benefiting from their suffering. Yeah. We're Rome. Yeah. <laughs> you know? a little, no, a little bit, a little bit. And, 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 you know, of course, the same is of course true for every major city in the country, right? That's where all the right. big companies are located. That's where all the wall, the wealth that is created by those companies accrues you know, Walmart being a great example of a enterprise that goes into places and sucks all the value out of them. And it accretes to Bentonville, Arkansas. Right. right. And, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with big companies and uh, with innovation. It's just that we, we have to find a way to raise the standards that we hold businesses to particularly large businesses, such that there are zero people who work for these companies that don't get paid enough by those companies to lead dignified, secure, middle-class middle lives. And if they did, then it wouldn't be colonization. <laughs> if every single Amazon worker was paid enough to lead a dignified, secure life and had a work environment that wasn't awful and exploitive, then good on them. But you know, the, the, the problem with modern capitalism is that it it's basically a permission to exploit people. And confers advantages onto those who are willing to be most exploitive in many ways. And that's just not what we should have. There's, you can have a very successful market economy that does not permit those things and is a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom. It grants advantages to the people who are incapable of feeling the pain of the that they create exactly. highlighted in this film. And yeah. I, and, you know, I don't want to get, you know, all this moralizing, but if you are not suffering from this economy and if you are, uh, and I, and I count myself in there now uh, uh, because I work for you, Nick, if you're one of the winners, but you're not working to address this crisis, you're complicit. Yeah. Just, just like the citizens of Rome were and the citizens of the you know, if the British Empire at its heyday, you were benefiting from the the colonialization, yeah. in this case, economic colonialization and not taking any responsibility for it. Yep. Yep. Well, anyway, I hope all of our listeners will watch the movie Americond, uh, which will be out soon to a platform or a streaming service near you. Right. You can, uh, we'll provide a link in the show notes. You can also go to their website, americond.com and watch the trailer. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.